bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Calvin and praise team. Good to be back with you. Thank you for a couple of weeks' holidays from the 7th to the 20th. I was uh, much of that time I was out west visiting, catching up with three daughters and the grandchildren that are out there, so it was a blessed time. Um, I did bring back a couple of things. One is uh, from Three Hills. Some of you remember Allison, my daughter, that was erstwhile worship leader here for a season. A shirt from Three Hills, where they're living now. I also brought back a bug, so that's why if you see me wearing a mask, it's not because I think you're infectious, it's because I don't want to share these germs with you, so please bear with me. Also, uh, uh, I'm, my voice is about a, about a half an octave lower than normal, so I'm hitting the low notes this morning. Um, somebody sent me a link of a, a Jack Hibbs uh, sermon, and I thought it was nice what he did with the congregation. Uh, they did the, the scripture reading together, so if you can pull out your pew Bibles in front of you there and turn to Matthew 24 on page, uh, we're going to be on page 823, page 823, and uh, if you can stand up and uh, what we'll do is I'll read the even verses if you can read the odd verses, and we'll just read from 36 down to 44. So please stand, Matthew 24. Uh, starting at verse 36, uh, page 823, and we'll go down 36 to 44, Matthew 24. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. And here you also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> Robbed. Matthew 24, 43. But understand this, Jesus said. If the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. A relative of mine runs a diesel engine repair and tweaking shop down in the Norwich area. November 11th is the day he will remember. About 2.35 a.m., Security cameras showed an invading truck towing away a GMC pickup that was in his yard awaiting repair. How would you feel if that were your truck? Just hitched on and towed it away. Three days later, it was discovered, dumped and abandoned, stripped down of any valuable parts. 
Uh, you can see the bumpers kind of torn apart there too where they hitched on. Anyway, he'd been robbed in very brazen fashion. The, the hood's gone, yeah, the headlights are gone, yeah. I recall one time when my oldest brother lived in Grimsby. He and his wife were away on vacation. The truck backed up to their suburban home and carried away furniture, appliances, valuables. And brother and his wife felt like they'd been violated to come back and find their home had been invaded and looted. Robbers and thieves are not rare. They frighten us. They're a threat to our security. Jesus described our spiritual enemy as a thief in sharp contrast to him who came to give instead of take. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, Jesus is saying, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What's Satan stealing? How is he being a thief? What's the, he out to take from us? I see at least three things in our passage he wants to rob us of. Truth, morality, and devotion. Uh, Truth. There are many ideologies out there, uh, many worldviews, and those who are deceptive or at least deceived have a vested interest in persuading us to adopt their version of reality, their relativistic version of truth. Jesus warned earlier in this passage about the end times, Matthew 24, 11. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Also verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Hmm. Actually performing great signs. Hmm. Isn't that convincing? Aren't they actually demonstrating their claims are true? Yet Jesus says it's deceptive. Thanks to the internet and YouTube and podcasts, we are now awash in all sorts of hucksters promoting alternative worldviews and ideologies. Some of them sound very adamant and convincing. Their their presentations hammer away with polished words and emphatic statements that wow us with a person's sureness. It's easy for us to find a few favorites that spout what we want to hear, what reaffirms our own biases and suspicions. But the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 warned there would come a time when people would turn away from the gospel and toward doctrines according to their liking. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Truth becomes a casualty when we dedicate ourselves to listening only to our pet echo chamber. Oh, that's truth as a casualty Satan would steal. Wholesome morality is another item Satan's robbing us of. Matthew 24, 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The increase of wickedness. Marriage's exclusivity is being honored less and less. World Cup players had planned to wear a one-love armband in support of homosexual and other deviances. Pornography is addictive for both men and women and robs us of our appreciation for our mate by engraving our brain cells with images of airbrushed and extreme models. It's getting tougher to find wholesome options to watch on our streaming services. Apparently, what's popular is not necessarily what's pure. 
devotion is a third thing Satan steals. Jesus predicts, the love of most will grow cold, there in verse 12. Church attendance has broadly taken about a 30% hit over the pandemic. People find it easier to just stay home and watch online or simply fall away from church participation altogether. The pace of life leaves Sunday as the one day when you still have some discretionary time. And for many, church just doesn't succeed in outweighing the competing options. How about when our service was canceled last Sunday due to power outage and bad weather? Did you feel like you were missing something? More? Did you welcome the extra time to devote to a favorite pastime? Did we actually feel a little guilty about being so relieved we didn't have to bundle up and head to worship? <sighs> the regular habit of gathering with other believers for fellowship helps keep our devotion strong for our Lord and his people. Two coals or two logs burn more brightly when placed beside each other. Hebrews 10.25 Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Throw that heat onto each other. All the more as you see the day approaching. In the book of Revelation, with letters to the early churches planted in Asia Minor, Jesus rebuked the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3.15 I know your deeds, but you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. How do we keep our fervor and devotion for the Lord hot and bubbling? Have we unwittingly allowed the enemy to quench the spiritual flames, distracting us with entertainments or material quests that yield faster feedback? Next section, hope worth having. What's our big idea for today? Though well, Satan is stealing, and Jesus revealing the real goal of life will be most appealing. The chapter begins with the disciples being wowed by Herod's temple in all its grandiosity, but Jesus reigns on that parade by pointing out all will be thrown down. It's all going to get leveled. Not one stone will be left standing on another. And that actually happened within about 40 years when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus wants to shift their gaze to a new wonder, his return to gather his people to himself. The focus of the chapter can be found in verses 30 forward. At that time, the son of, sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This turning point in history harks back all the way to a vision of Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night, Daniel said, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Before we become too wowed by things in this life, rather than 
Let our focus be submerged in the mundane patterns of daily existence. Jesus would remind us he is coming back. And everything will be different after that. He is the true lasting reference point in all history. Pleasing him, being ready for him is the real goal of life. Note verse 30 says at his appearing, the nations of the earth will mourn. Why wouldn't they be happy instead? Have their own goals been wrong? Are they mourning because they recognize the futility of what they've been living for? How much they've let the enemy steal and rob from them? Jesus' coming is emphasized in a couple of other verses here. Verse 37, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And verse 39, this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The word translated coming here is parousia in the Greek, which means coming, arrival, or advent. Hence, this first Sunday of Advent uh, heralds a season of four weeks looking forward not only to Christmas, Jesus' first coming in human form, but also to his eventual return, his second coming. This passage underlines five things about Jesus' return that highlight it's a hope worth having. It is certain, it is secret, it is sudden, it is surprising, and it is subversive. First, it is certain. You can count on it. Jesus wasn't wrong about the destruction of Jerusalem, even though such a thing must have seemed unthinkable to the disciples as they admired these glistening buildings. Herod's temple took about 46 years to build. Study verses 34 and 35, which Jesus begins with a solemn expression, Amen, or Amen. I tell you the truth, that's the Amen. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But isn't that what's really real? What our scientific method is based upon? What materialists trust in fundamentally? Even though at an atomic level we know it's actually mostly empty space with some tiny particles whirling around in energy fields. Jesus is saying his words will outlast heaven and earth. His truth is what's really true, what will never cease to be. Considering that, what are you banking on? Is your security, what you're hoping in, really real? Or in light of eternity, is it a mirage that vanishes? A shallow earthquake November 22nd left over 270 Indonesians dead. Stock markets have seen significant declines in the past years. Pension funds that invested in cryptocurrency exchange FTX, including the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, lost millions. Let the Lord set the values of your heart. Second, Jesus' coming is secret. Verse 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. We can't predict when it's going to happen. 
although some signs of the end times do seem to be coming apparent. So we need to be ready anytime, regardless. An Encyclopedia Britannica article online by Rachel Cole titled 10 Failed Doomsday Predictions has some interesting reminders that those who've tried to predict Jesus' return in the past have failed miserably. Harold Camping has publicly predicted the end of the world as many as 12 times based on his interpretations of biblical numerology. In 1992, he published a book ominously titled 1994 Question Mark which predicted the end of the world sometime around that year. Perhaps his most high-profile predication was for May 21, 2011, a date that he calculated to be exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. When that date passed without incident, he declared his math to be off and pushed back the end of the world to October 21, 2011. Well, here we are in 2022. <coughs> Cole adds, religious leader William Miller, uh, the Millerites, began preaching in 1831 that the end of the world as we know it would occur with the second coming of Jesus Christ in 1843. He attracted as many as 100,000 followers who believed that they would be carried off to heaven when the date arrived. When the 1843 prediction failed to materialize, Miller recalculated and determined that the world would actually end in 1844. Oops, wrong again. But my favorite is what Cole titles the Prophet Hen of Leeds. She writes, In 1806, a domesticated hen, yes, a chicken, in Leeds, England, appeared to lay eggs inscribed with the message, Christ is coming. Great numbers of people reportedly visited the hen and began to despair of the coming judgment day. It was soon discovered, however, that the eggs were not, in fact, prophetic messages, but the work of their owner, who had been writing on the eggs in corrosive ink and reinserting them into the poor hen's body. Poor bird, what a foul ploy. All of which demonstrates the date of Jesus' coming is a secret. Third, it is sudden. This is memorably driven home by our Lord in verses 40 and 41. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Well, this image probably haunts those who sang Larry Norman's 1969 classic, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Two, come on, if you know it. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. However, as John MacArthur points out, this probably isn't about believers being raptured or snatched away or caught up, as in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. In the Matthew 24 context, taken probably means taken in judgment. As just before in verse 39, the flood comes when Noah enters the ark and took them all away. And that was not a positive experience. Nevertheless, it happens very suddenly, like lightning, 24, 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Fourth, his coming is surprising. At the start today, we talked about a truck being towed off surprisingly in the middle of the night. Most unexpected. Jesus likens his parousia to that of a thief 
verse 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. We don't usually think of Jesus in connection with a thief, do we? But this is sort of a common thread in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Revelation 3, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, Jesus is talking, and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. And Revelation 16.15, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. The fifth, Jesus' coming is subversive. I save this to last because I find it most significant. Upending, cataclysmic, upsetting the apple cart. Jesus compares it to the unique and tumultuous event of Noah and the flood. Now, press pause for a moment. Note that Jesus is treating the account of Noah as history. Not just as a parable or made-up fiction. If Jesus plainly expects his hearers to acknowledge it as history, that Noah and the flood really happened, who are we to suppose the story of Noah and the flood and the ark is just a fairy tale? It was cataclysmic, earth-shaking, divine judgment, punctuating human dealings. And why did the judgment of the flood happen? Look back to Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Our wickedness, our evil hearts and inclinations grieve God, cause him pain. Back to Jesus' point. He describes normal, everyday life. Verse 38. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. In Living Translation, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings. Sounds just like your normal folk, doesn't it? Party hardy. YOLO. You only live once. But after Noah entered the ark, verse 39 And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. His coming is cataclysmic, exposing the shallowness of our preoccupations, the limitedness of our vision, the self-centeredness of our existence. The real goal of life is not eating and drinking and getting hitched. The real goal is pleasing him to whom one day you must give account. So, don't get too cozy with culture. Christians are by definition countercultural, for we are looking to him who will one day return to gather us to himself. His promise helps us see the larger picture, to, to live for higher ideals, nobler purposes than just filling our gut and satisfying our senses. Don't settle for these pale, temporal, mortal pursuits. Again, our big idea for today, say it with me. Though Satan is stealing, at Jesus revealing, the real goal of life will be most appealing. Uh, Section, vigilance vindicated. 
such hope worth having motivates us to keep watch. Verse 42, therefore keep watch. Verse 43, the owner would have kept watch and not let us have to be broken into. Verse 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The chapter closes with an illustration Jesus offers of a faithful servant. A wicked servant would suppress, would suppose the master's not returning for a long time. And what's he do? Jesus says, verse 49, he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. Well, that basic default human nature, eat and drink mode. Back to that pre-Noah lifestyle, living for the moment, grabbing what you can while the getting is good, abusing others, exploiting them to feed your greeds. Where does verse 51 say the wicked servant ends up? Cut to pieces and assigned a place with who? The murderers? The rapists? The underworld lowlifes? No, the hypocrites. Those who preach one thing but practice otherwise. Hmm. By contrast, what's the faithful servant do? Gives the others in the household their food at the proper time. The faithful servant is other-centered, knowing his master is returning and he's just discharging a stewardship on the master's behalf. How does the master reward the faithful servant? Verse 47, prefaced by another, Amen. Listen up. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Get out. How stellar. But the point here is not the stuff. The point is the character that the faithful steward demonstrates. He's responsible, unselfish, watching out to take care of others. And that's precisely the kind of person the master delights to put in charge. Such a faithful servant has discovered the real goal of life. Let's pray. Father, as we proceed through this Advent season, help us look forward not only to this Christmas, December 25th, but to be looking forward to Jesus' coming, his appearing, or parousia, and not to be wowed by even the best this world offers. We want to watch with eyes that see beyond daily distractions all that the advertisers try to entice us with. Help us live each moment in such a way that no matter when Jesus comes, we can feel ready instead of mourn. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ernest. And uh, at this time, we're going to close off with one more song.